Hi, this is Bron Burton, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Oh, good morning, good morning. It is about one and a half minutes past the hour of nine o'clock. You're on 3 Triple R. This is Radio Marinara. I'm Anthony Boxshaw. I'm Bron Burton. And I'm Kate Mills. Hello and welcome. It's great. The three of us in the studio is wonderful. Yay. Yeah, I, I feel know. like I'm the grasshopper amongst the... <laughs> <laughs> the and I'm impressed, Bron, you're, you're kitted out. You're, you're obviously running out in the field today for the first training of, oh, yeah. the, of the community cup. Yeah, with my bionic hip. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that will propel you down the field. (laughs) Just, it's okay, Helen from Warnington. I'm not running out on the field. Oh, uh, yeah, you should see she's got her runners on, she's got her dragonags on, I'm she's good to ready go. to go. Good to go. Um, we, uh, we've got to start by thanking young young Tim, who had another young guest in this morning, young John, apparently has a show a bit later today, which we all love. Yes, we do. Yeah, the, uh, as you mentioned earlier, it was the battle of the deep voices. It was, wasn't, wasn't it? it? That was so soothing. I know. Yes. It was, it was I, you know, I just, when I was in the car and he first introduced John, I just, I just relaxed. I, I did a double take. Did you? Yeah. You're like, oh, my God, we should like, be on what? it. What happened? <laughs> and then I thought, oh, yeah, Mother's Day is coming up. Yeah. yeah. Which is, of course, why he was here yes. next weekend, the big Brunswick ballroom. And his Mother's Day special, as always. Fantastic. Yep. It's brilliant. The way that those themes have grown over the years into actual entire events, like spin-off events, it's fantastic. Looking forward to it already. And, of course, Tim, you know, the usual just... How does he do it? We run out of words, don't we? I, well, I think he just does it in his sleep. He's just programmed. <laughs> it's beautiful. Should, it's too natural. We should also thank Andrew very much for soulful bits and Steph for things to do today. Absolutely. Mm. Hey, so we've got a very big show. We've got uh, Rex Hunter's joining us in the studio. He's, he's at the minute um, digging in the corner. He seems to be looking <laughs> for some kind of archaeology. I don't know. <laughs> but he's, he's going to join us. He's, but he's dressed like a, a, an able seaman from the 1830s or something. <laughs> So, you know, we're going to find out what that's all about. <laughs> I think it's about reenactments. I think that's just Rex. <laughs> wonder what treasure he'll find here. This used to be a lingerie factory, so <laughs> he might find all kinds of things if he digs deep enough. Oh, dear. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and then... Well, I think then we've got a dive report. Oh, yes, we yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, we we'll do. be catching up with, uh, with Myra for a dive report. Had a chat with her yesterday. Believe it or not, there are people diving today. So looking forward oh, to talking to her. Are we going to hear it's... from the weather in a tick as to why that is a surprise? Yeah. Well, yes. it's, actually warm, it's actually warmer in the water. Now, <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, she mentioned that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God, yes. Um, yeah, and then we're going to talk to Hope Robbins, who's a PhD student at La Trobe University who studies brains. She's actually did neuroscience. Oh, and now she's going to, she's moved on to, apparently she doesn't like people that much and prefers <laughs> animals, which I think a lot of listeners can relate to. <laughs> Are you setting her up there? Like... No, I'm pretty sure she'll own up to that one. But now she's doing neuroecology, which is a word oh, I'd never no. come across. And my spell checker actually said, no, this isn't a word. And <laughs> turns out it is a word. So we're going to get her in to talk about that and some amazing work she's doing in and around Port Phillip Bay around the underwater soundscape. 
Oh, that is very cool. That is very cool. And we're kind of then after that, we're continuing a bit of a, what we say, a couple of months theme on kelp forests. <laughs> I think it's rapidly becoming our annual theme for this year. <laughs> yes. It's yeah. like the big thing. Restoration and kelp forests. Algae is the new black. Big, yeah. <laughs> True, um, or brown, red, or green. Yes. Um, and um, so, so Aaron is joining us. Um, he has been in a couple of times. He's been he's great. But they just actually just after I guess you, you had him on last time. It was literally the day after yeah. we had him on last time. And he was he holding onto a big paper and yeah. he didn't say anything about it. Yes. And they released it. It's fantastic. Very interesting stuff. It's about what they've done is the an economic valuation of kelp forests which we'll talk a lot more about. We'll talk about why you would do that. There's a lot of people kind of struggle with the, you know, why do you do that? Um, but also, yeah. So anyway, so, so um, Aaron will join us towards the end of the show. We'll have a chat about that. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Uh, hey, a little bit of news. Someone was going to... Yeah, well, I just wanted to share like a bit of promotion. So this is for any students out there. The Australian Marine Science Association, or students doing marine science in Victoria, is having a postgraduate symposium. Now, this is done, I think, every two years, and the idea behind it is to get all the postgraduate students, honours, masters and PhD students together and provide a nice, safe, friendly environment for them to pre- present their work but also just meet people from other labs. It's a really great opportunity to meet other students and other people studying. So it's going to be down at the, I didn't realise it's now, the Deakin Queenscliff Marine Science Centre, which was previously mm. the Fisheries Victoria Centre. Mm. So Deakin's basically taken over, yep. which is Ooh, good to see. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And that's on Friday the 23rd of June. Um, said it'll be in Queens, Queenscliff. It's an opportunity to take a day off your study and go down and hang out with other marine scientists and completely nerd out. Um, the best way to find out about it is jump onto Eventbrite and type in Australian Marine Science Association Victoria and it will come up as an upcoming thing. Oh, $15 for AMSA members and 20 for non-members. A really good opportunity for students. Brilliant. And it's aimed at uni students, is that right? Or it is, is it uni yeah, students. So yeah. honours, masters and PhD students, yeah, so people gotcha. at that stage. And it's a great opportunity for them to present their work and probably lots of stories. So one of us should probably be there hearing about this amazing <laughs> research and bring it to the table. Bron. I've got a really quick one. Um, mm. Thanks to Mel for sending this our way. Did you know it was World Tuna Day in the week that's just gone by? <laughs> no, I missed no, that. I, I, I knew there was a donut day. But I didn't know there was a thing called World, World Tuna, Tuna day. day. There you go. Yeah. Is that a UN day of World Tuna? I or is know. it like the Tuna Association <laughs> someone's day? De- someone's decided it's World Tuna Day. Oh. So that was on Tuesday. Oh, Tuna's Day. Oh. oh. <laughs> The, just, uh, is that seriously in the press release? Yes. Oh no, no, it isn't. I just made that up. <laughs> I can leave if you like. We <laughs> should take the bad weather. <laughs> okay, World Tuna Day. Hang on, we've got 50 minutes to go. Let's, okay, yeah, let's bring it home. Um, Marine Stewardship Council has revealed whilst most Aussies are seeking sustainable tuna, so that's good. They've done a survey. 57% actually mm. actively look for sustainable tuna when they buy it, so that's really good. Um, but there is a difficulty relating to labelling, so no great surprises here. This has been an ongoing problem for a very long time. Um, and also limited options available and find it con- find it confusing into, uh, into making that huh. choice. So just some of those stats, 57% of Australians trying to seek out sustainably sourced tuna. Uh, 
the average household consumes 36 cans of tuna a year. That doesn't seem like much. It doesn't, does it? For a household. Um, And three out of five would be more likely to purchase canned tuna if it had a trusted eco-label such as the MSC, Marine Stewardship Council's Blue Fish Tick. Oh, there you go. Interesting. World Tuna Day. Happy World Tuna Day. Happy World Tuna Day. Or as the tuna would say... (laughs) (laughs) That was them swimming. (laughs) Okay. We've got a long way to swim upstream now. (laughs) You should have seen the look on their faces, listeners. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. And indeed, good morning. You are on Radio Marinara on 3RRR. You can text us anytime. We've had a quick text in from David, Dan McRae. He says he was definitely hailing already this morning, mm. Bron. So oh, there you go. Before those messages was Broderick Smith and Ocean Deep, wonderful, and of course, Vale. Uh, it is time. For we, he stopped. He's downed his tools. Um, he's stopped. He is dressed like an eighteen thirties page boy. But uh, Rex Hunter, why are you in that clobber? And what have you been doing? Oi there, my, my lads, <laughs> my salty lads. Excuse <laughs> 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 me. Well, yeah. Well, that's how I normally get around the streets of Melbourne. <laughs> You've been doing reenactments. Well, reenactments. I've been uh, reading about reenactment voyages. Um, it's just. It's one way of testing hypothesis, someone's yeah. hypothesis, you know. How did the, uh, like, how did the Vikings get to North America and was it possible? Other voyages, you know, like Ulysses' voyages and um, Sinbad voyages and all this. So this is, this is done. It's not, yeah. not cheap, but um, you can actually build replicas and test your hypothesis. Yeah. And, and apparently, so you were saying, we've been doing this a long time? I thought this was a modern phenomenon oh, to reenact. Let me set you straight, oh. young man. Oh, <laughs> well, the, this goes right back to the 1890s when the... Uh, uh, yeah, Captain... I mean, seriously. Uh, <laughs> Magnus Anderson had a, a longship built, a Viking longship built in Norway, and him and a crew of 11 sailed all the way from uh, Norway to North America, yeah. went through all the Erie Canal and, and turned up to the Chicago annual, um, to World Vine- Fair. To Vineland to, to or whatever Vi- they were calling it. Just there. testing to say, yeah. well, it's possible that Leif Erikson arrived. And his a, sister. Don't forget his sister. His, his, his anyway, favourite yeah, sister yeah, yeah. arrived you know, four to five hundred years before Columbus. Yes. Yeah, well, clearly they did. But, yes, wow. Yeah. And so, so that was 1890-something. That was yeah, and then... Move on a few years. We've got like Thor Heyerdahl yeah. and the um, Contiki ex- expedition. Where that they... was not a tour, just so we're, we're clear. <laughs> yeah. It is now a tour. It was they not at that sober. time. <laughs> yeah. It all would have been 21 pretty... years of age. <laughs> would have been a tough tour. Because <laughs> he, he went from like South America right yeah, across, didn't he? drifted across. It was more or less a drift voyage, but yeah. they drifted from um, South America all the way across to the uh, f- to French Polynesia in a hundred hundred odd days, and this was to prove the stories of the Polynesians coming from, from the very far east of the Pacific. South, yes, South America, South America, across. drifting across and wow. proving it was possible. So, wow. uh, another, um, I mean, it's still going on because we have like the Endeavour, we have the yeah. Dufkin, and they're they're still sailing they're sailing around Australia. So you've got all these reenactment voyages, you know. Test your hypothesis. How did they do it? Can they do it? And yes, they can. So are, are the conditions the same? 
when they do these reenactments? Like, you know, when they're on this Viking boat, are they still living like Vikings? And well, yeah, or, or the they've 18, got GPS. Yeah. <laughs> in the eighteen ninety three, yeah, because there was no yeah. GPS. Yeah, so yeah, of course, there was no. Uh, there but was no electric they, lighting. <laughs> did they would have had different navigational tools than the Vikings? Or did the Vikings have like sex? The Vikings didn't have sex. No, no, sex did, no. were no. No. until about yeah. the seventeen hundreds. Yeah, or those quadrants and, and tools like that, and they could. Tell their their latitude, but they couldn't tell your longitude. Yeah, right. That was a real tricky tricky part. Right, and they just use stars, you know, follow yeah. the North Star or whatever, and just like like the Polynesians, who you could yeah. navigate by the stars. They did, stars and currents and winds. You know, they knew at certain times of years where the wind would be coming from, so they had to steer at a certain angle into that. So it's it's. It's fascinating. And do we learn a lot? Do you think we learn a lot from these reenactments? It, it, yeah. It, 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 you can test your hypothesis yeah. and you can say, well, yeah, gee, it is possible to build build a, a vessel and sail from point A to point B or drift from point A to point B and you know, we can write a paper about it. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what about, what about St Brendan's Voyage? Tell us about St Brendan's Voyage. Well, Tim Severin was a historian... Uh, historian Explorer, and in the mid 1970s, he had this idea of testing again the hypothesis that uh, the monks St. Brendan sailed from um, Ireland all the way in a leather boat. Uh, yeah, so Carrick. let's just pause there for leather one minute. Boat. In a leather boat, yeah. in a leather skin boat, <laughs> yeah, all the way from Ireland across to again North America. And he spent seven years voyaging up, up around the Atlantic with his, his uh, hardy crew. And that's an historic fact, isn't it, that, that St Brendan did that? Well... Well, or at the, least it's a claim. There, yeah. it, was, it was a claim. And then yeah. how do you prove this claim? Yeah, the only way you're going to prove it is you're going to go Make to Ireland. Make a leather boat. You're going to go to Ireland. You're going to track down <laughs> old leather workers, old shipwrights, <laughs> yeah. and you employ them to um, construct your boat. So he basically... Tim Severin raised the funds mm. to build a, 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 a wooden frame boat... And this wooden frame boat, these days we use nuts and bolts to hold mm. things together. It was all tied. It was all tied together with leather straps. No. <laughs> but leather, it, it would, when it gets wet, it would, you that, know, like it would, you know, like it would constrict and then it would dry and then it would tighten. And then you're would... one of those naysayers that Tim had to prove wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what they're saying. They're saying... Oh, no, we've, we've tested leather and after two, three months in the water, yeah. it just falls apart. Well, places. that's what I'm... It's, yes, and? Well, <laughs> Tim tracked down this tannery in, um, in, in England who still used traditional tanning methods no. of, of um, you know, uh, to put... So get the tannins right into the leather. Yeah. And so he tracked down this old firm that had been doing it for like 200 years. Yeah. And he, so he had, like, I don't know, it was, I think it was like 100-odd ox hides soaked <laughs> for months... In a tent, in a brew, and then, and then he um, used uh, wool, wool fat, and grease to waterproof the oh, thing. Yes. Along the way, he discovered, you know, like there was uh, that's just crazy. An Irish uh, leather worker who happened to make leather saddles, but he got out of it because there was no business in the end. Right. It was a, became a bricklayer, yeah. and he would punch a, a, a needle through. Talking, talking like an inch of leather. Yeah. You imagine you got half oh, inch, yeah, half yeah. inch leather hides. You put two. It was just twenty five mil yeah. to you young young kids out there. <laughs> and you'd punch a needle through this and stitch and the, sew it and sew it. Yeah, and the, and 
the others in the crew, because he had, he had leather workers, apprentices from London come over, and they were helping. They were just like blown away by this guy who could just punch through <laughs> an inch. Of, like inch all, of, these, all these young London students going, what the hell? Uh, yeah. Hey, so but hang on, St Brendan supposedly did this in the 7th century. Yeah, so... <laughs> Oh, that's serious? So St. Brendan actually upsurped Leif Erikson. Yeah, usurped well, yeah. Leif Erikson mm. by doing it. And Tim Tim had the boat built and all that. Yeah. And they set off. Did they make it? Let me, <laughs> I'll be back in three weeks to tell you whether he made it or not. So Tim, Tim sailed the vessel with a crew of, you know, hardy mariners yeah. up to the Faroe Islands. Yeah. He picked up this incredible guy called... To- Trying to do a partisan yeah. as a crew, and he was a natural, you know. Uh, he was actually a Viking. <laughs> uh, he, he looked like a Viking. Yeah, yeah. He, he amazing seamen and fishermen mm. and all that. And then they sailed up to Iceland uh, through icebergs in a leather in boat. In a leather boat. They, they camped, they, they got there and it was winter, so they had to leave the boat there over right. winter and then um, continue on the way after, after winter, eventually coming around the t- tip of um, Greenland. And landing in <gasps> Newfoundland. Wow! But along the way, you know, Impressive. St. Brendan wrote these. Oh, we were stone. We were attacked by this fire-breathing monster. What? They had these uh, hot cold. We're throwing hot cauldrons at us, and they go, well, oh, "This is this is rubbish." Volcano. 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 Because <laughs> well, I was thinking either that or he's been on the whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they they go, "Oh, you know, we uh, saw it. Oh, we wow. found this crystal cave." Yeah, right. Iceberg. Yeah, right. wow. And so all this this seemed totally far-fetched. Yeah, yeah. Suddenly they started ticking boxes yeah, yeah, and yeah. saying, well, this is all That'd possible. Be it. How and interesting. One of the monks allegedly got out on this island and swam away, a whale, a sleeping whale. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Oh, look, we could talk about this all morning, Rex, yeah. but we can't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd love to. Absolutely hey, fascinating. If you find any books by Tim Severin, okay. buy them. If you go, go to the basement books, they've always got them. All right, cool. Fantastic. So reenactments, they happen, they and work. Good, provide good information. Fantastic. Thank you very much. We'll let you get back in the corner and <laughs> dig because he's looking for the lingerie. Hang on, I'll right. just, <laughs> I'm just going to slip my other flipper on. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Rex. Thanks for having me. Wow, look at that. How's that? Ian Heckman's. I'm going to go and get myself a leather boat. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Indeed, we are on through Triple R, and it is that time of the morning. It is indeed, where we cross to our dive reporter, Myra Kelly. Uh, good morning, Myra. Good morning, all. How are you this morning? Yeah, pretty good. Possibly. We're, we're wondering about you. <laughs> now, um, <laughs> where are you, and uh, are you diving, and what are the conditions like? Look, absolutely diving. I am down here geared up at Blair Gowrie. Uh, it is a fresh morning. Um, as you said before, I'm expecting to be warmer in the water than out. Um, but that said, it is an absolutely beautiful morning down here. Um, it is a fresh wind, but we are sheltered. The water is dead flat. Uh, we're on a low tide here now, and it's just beautiful. There's been about seven divers already into the water, and wow. there's more in the car park waiting to get in. So um, 
don't let the cold weather hold you back. There's lots of benefits for, for getting in the water. Yeah, it's one of those things, isn't it? Um, there, there are so many benefits and really once you get over the cold factor, everything else opens up. It, it does. Look, you know, there, there's aspects. I, I guess for me probably the main thing is just the sheer fear of missing out. You never know what you're going to miss out on. <laughs> perspective and just interacting with the marine life you just never know what you're going to miss out on if you don't go it's the old saying you know if you don't go you are you don't know um but there's the mental health there's the mental health aspect there's the social aspect um the skills practice that you can do during the the colder colder weather um you know smb deploy um buoyancy control things like that um, so, yeah, always definitely uh, worthwhile getting in the water. Yeah, and I think there's something, too, about you appreciate the warm conditions so much more once you've experienced <laughs> the cold. <laughs> yeah, two-hour two dives, nine degrees during winter. It's, uh, yeah, it certainly makes you look forward to the, the three-hour dives in uh, in warmer conditions in, in, in summer. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, look, with, with that, the, the divers that dived yesterday uh, off the boats, they actually were rewarded um, with 15, 15 metres visibility in Port Phillip Heads area. Wow. And that was, that was despite the larger swell. Um, wow. We had people that dived Blair yesterday reported five metres viz, and people that dived Frankston were also really surprised with how good the visibility was as well. Um, and the long-range forecast hot tip from a really wise man that I listened to. Uh, next weekend, boat diving, it, the forecast is looking like it's going to be really good. So um, my dive buddy and I have already got our eyes on a, a couple of dives that we want to book on to. Uh, so, yeah, if you're, if you're at all interested, book on and make the most of, uh, of what we've got out there. Um and I, I think the other thing also coming up the next few weeks, there's some citizen science projects that I would really love to give a, a shout-out to. Uh, I know Cade's involved in, in some of them with VNPA, uh, but it's the, the Underia, the underwater weeding projects across uh, our piers uh, on both sides of Port Phillip Bay. So I think on the 21st we've got... It's looking like a double dive over at Port Arlington with, uh, with one of the local groups over there taking care of the pier. And there's also uh, ocean divers uh, doing an Underia and Northern Pacific Sea Star cleanup below Brighton Pier on the 27th of May. Uh, there is also one at Frankston as well that's been conducted, uh, I think, possibly on the 21st. Um, so there's your opportunity to get in the cold water, benefit from it, um, socialise with other like-minded people and become a citizen scientist for a day and contribute to some really wonderful projects. Excellent, Myra. That's a great note to end on. Um, Next week when we have you back on the program, hopefully for another dive report, we can go through those um, events in more detail because they're coming up in the next few weeks. Um, Yeah, that would be great. Yeah, brilliant. All right, have an awesome day uh, and enjoy your diving. Thank you. I will. Catch you next week. Thanks, Myra. See ya. Myra Kelly there. Winter diving at its best. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Um, you're on Rodeo Marinara and it is German morning. No, it's not. Um, and we're going <laughs> to talk about all kinds of wonderful things. Over to you, Kate. Yes. Um, Hope Robbins is our next guest and she loves brains. Um, <laughs> she's not a zombie. She's a PhD student at La Trobe University and is part of the Neuroecology Group. Welcome to Marinara, Hope. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Look, I just want to start with the word neuroecology. As I said when I, at the start of the show, I typed it into you know, a Word document and it wanted to spell check me. So I had to check that it was a word. It is. What is neuroecology? Yeah, so if you take the word neuroecology apart, you end up with neuro and ecology. And those two words are kind of self-explanatory. But neuro basically refers to the brain and the senses. And with ecology, we're looking at that in the context of the habitat and the environment of the animal that we're studying. So we put them together, we get a really nice picture of sort of through from the sensory systems through to the output in the environment and the way that they interact with each other. So it's not about the ecology of the brain as it's <laughs> more about how the brain is used. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And how the environment shapes brain along evolution as well. Now, I know one of the, I've actually seen an image that was shown. It was basically of a, it was an elephant shark being dissected <laughs> and its brain sort of being like sort of pulled apart. And I believe it was, or not pulled apart. <laughs> so it was basically just that laid out. It was. You know, this is a breakfast time slot. I won't go into <laughs> painting the picture of it. But basically, it, you had, um, it was Travis Duker um, was talking about it and basically saying, you can. Is it you can, you can look at the brain and actually sort of work out how different senses are being utilised or yeah. um, how important they are? Yeah, exactly. So we can look at the brain um, and we can look at the size of different regions in the brain that we know are associated with different senses and we can work out how important they are based on sort of how big those areas are and we can also look at the size of the sensory organs associated with them, how many nerves are going into them and that kind of thing. So we can tell a lot just from looking at the brain without even starting to look at behaviour. It's so, like, you know, we've got a fish there. <laughs> what are the sensors that you're looking at and... I guess the next question is like, what are the ones that are important or like strongly developed? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's the whole PhD. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, so you can just answer that now quickly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, no worries. I can just get the qualification now and then we can move on. Um, yeah, so I'm interested in hearing. Um, so that's what I'm looking at. But um, I'm not sure if you guys are aware or the viewers at home, but so I look at sharks and sharks have six senses. So they have this electrical reception as well. So um, we have a lot of different senses we can look at. There's been a lot of work looking into vision, um, but we know that sound travels really well underwater. So we do expect it to be quite important for them. So that's kind of where my interest was sparked. So, yeah, I'm looking at hearing. Uh, and then I guess I wanted to ask, so how similar or do we know how similar or dissimilar is fish hearing to ours? Like on what sort of wavelengths are they listening to? Yeah, so um, there is some overlap. Um, sharks, they hear within the range of sort of 20 to 1,000 hertz, but they're super sensitive to low-frequency sounds. Hmm. And um, obviously we hear that same range. We have a bit of a wider range. We can hear more high-frequency as well. Um, but the thing that's really important with this is those sound levels do dangerously overlap with anthropogenic sound sources. So that sounds coming from humans in the water, so boats and things like that. Oh, that is a perfect segue to <laughs> a little game that I would like to play here in the studio and that listeners, that listeners at home can play as well. We hope. We hope. <laughs> now, Hope has actually brought in some underwater recordings. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to play two short recordings one is a ambient sort of normal underwater sounds and the other may have some anthropogenic or human created noise. Well, we have to pick which one. And we have to pick <laughs> okay. which one. So, so will I play sound one now? Yes, please. Have. Okay, I'm just going to... If we can hear it. Yeah, well, okay, here we go. This is sound one. Listen very carefully. If at home you don't have your radio turned up very loud... 
Now, that is sound one. What are we hearing there, Hope? So, am I giving away which one it no, is? No, no, no. I just like... Do you want to play sound two? Yeah, let's, yeah. Sorry, yeah, let's, go, to sound, let's go to sound two. Okay, okay. So then you might so, be able to pick which one's which. That oh. bit at the end that gets <laughs> really ramps me. up. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm so hoping... Which is the natural sound? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to plug. I'm just going to go out on a limb here, not being a sound hearing specialist, but I reckon number one was ambient na- natural sound, which was very faint, but very soft, very calming. And number two, what was that? A boat or a chainsaw? <laughs> <laughs> so that would be a boat. Wow. So, yeah, you, you really don't understand how loud they are from the surface because the water surface acts yeah. as this barrier for the sound. Were the sounds recorded at the same depth in the same place? Uh, yes. Yep. So, yeah. Wow. So, Just important to know that. Yes. yes, <laughs> yeah. yes yeah. Well, that was my next question. Was, we've got two things to talk about here. And so one is like the, the easy question is how do you actually get these recordings? And then the second, which I'm assuming is part of your PhD, is like, what does this do to fish? Yes, exactly. (laughs) So the way that we've been getting these recordings, we have these really cool small devices. They're sort of uh, the size of a GoPro and they basically sit on the seafloor. So they're at the moment stationed all around Port Phillip Bay and Western Port and they're continuously recording. So we're picking up everything that's going on in those areas. And that's within protected areas, non-protected areas and areas we expect there to be high shipping traffic, no shipping traffic, just to kind of get a real good idea of what's going on in our bays because it's really hard to track that kind of thing, even though it's such a simple concept. And this is something you're saying hasn't really been done before? It's been done in other places. Oh, sorry, um, in Port Phillip Bay. Yeah, but in Port, Port Phillip Port. Bay and Western Port, it has never been done. So we really have no idea what the baseline is. So it's really important for us to understand that first before we work out sort of what's rising, what we need to look at and how it's affecting the fish that reside there. Because, you know, they're super productive areas, both for human use and also for fish that come in for reproduction or live there. So, yeah. Yeah, I'd- I, we can talk about that more, but we are, we don't have time. So, <laughs> what 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 do we know about this, and what does it do to fish? Like, is there other research that's been done, and you're just sort of transferring that across to fish here, or are you basically the first person to sort of be doing this? Um, So we know that anthropogenic human sound does have an impact on fish. A lot of research has been done on teleos, which is bony fishes, and also marine mammals. And it's been shown that it can actually damage the inner ear, it can change behaviour. But in Port Phillip Bay, we have these amazing animals that come in here to seasonally migrate and reproduce. And it's really important that we protect them, but we don't know how it affects them. So that's where our work comes in. So... With these sounds, we also play them back to the live animals and we watch their responses so we can work out how vulnerable they are. You could imagine, like, if you're, you know, you're a migrating fish that's coming through and you come to this place where you're supposed to go in, you know, a bay for whatever reason, for reproduction or whatever, and if it's like a sound, a wall of sound, yeah, I can just imagine, I don't want to be anthropomorphic and you know, put myself <laughs> in the mind of a fish, but I could just imagine that's not where I want to go, you yeah, know, if it's, exactly. dis- if it's distracting or if it annoys yeah. you. Or, and even wow. if it's not super stressful, there's the potential for it to mask biological sounds that they need for feeding. So it can be, yeah. it can be really difficult with the cues that they need to survive. So. Wow. I never thought about this in this late <laughs> No, and that's why we're... Yeah, I know. That's right. right. And I'll be honest, that's why we'll be getting hope back on. (laughs) With more sound. Yeah, there'll be plenty of data to share with you guys. To learn more about that, yeah. (laughs) Um, 
I guess we've just got to, to wrap up. Um, what can be done about the noise? Like this is something that's, you know, I think it's in the last 20 or 30 years, this understanding of the fact that we are making a lot of noise in the ocean starting to ramp up. Are they starting to create like noise, like refuge, like quiet rooms in a sense for a <laughs> marine environment? Like is this something that's starting to come out? Yeah, so I mean we've got marine protected areas in the bays. Um, so one of the reasons that we are recording within them is to see if there is this sort of refuge area for the fish. So hopefully there is and we don't need to make any massive changes, but um, ultimately the goal for us is that we want to be in harmony with the fish. We don't want to stop anyone doing their fishing. We don't want to stop anyone with their shipping. Uh, But we also don't want to stop the fish from coming in because obviously they're really important to our ecosystem. So... Um, yeah, hold that thought and we'll see what happens. <laughs> Look, she's just wrapped me up. That's fantastic. I love it. You're a natural. Thank you so much. Hope. You can come Thank back. You. Yes. Uh, that was Hope Robbins from the Trove University wrapping me up and saying, let's get on with the show. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune into Radio Marinara on 102.7 3RRR. You know where it is. There we always thank you, Thanks, Tim. Tim. Tim will be in town next week, of course. And prior to Tim, who, um, you know, of course we love, uh, we were playing, uh, if I can change your mind, which is, I, you know, I'm going to say it, Cade. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go there. I think one of the best albums, as a whole album, that sugar copper blue album that was ever written. Is this one of your desert island discs? It's I, you know the, the you know the way some albums just hang together as an album. Yep. That is just sensational. For those that don't know, if you're younger and you forget, there's 31 years old now. If you if you are listening to it and you go okay, just just go into Spotify, go sugar, go Bob Mould, go Huskadoo, you'll see the whole origin story, Grant Hart, the whole bit. Anyway. You're on Radio Marinara. We have about eight, nine minutes before the doctors are coming in, and it's great, wonderful to... Um we kind of got a bit of a theme going um, this year, we think, on kelp. And so uh, Dr. Aaron Eggers from the uh, Kelp Forest Alliance, but also the University of New South Wales, rejoins us again. You're getting a bit regular here, Aaron. <laughs> Welcome. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Very happy to contribute to the kelp theme. <laughs> yes. well, it's, it's on a bit of a roll, isn't it, Kate? The kelp theme. Yes, it's been. taken off. <laughs> <laughs> hey, and un- unfortunately, unlike the kelp, and so I guess that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. About gee, it's almost a couple of three weeks ago. You guys released a, a really interesting piece of research around the economic value of kelp forests. Um, let's actually describe that value first, and then let's talk about why. H- how valuable economically is a kelp forest? It's almost hard to imagine how valuable a kelp forest is, which is, is why we started to get into this research. And, and what we did find is that all across the world, about within 50 kilometers of 750 million people, kelp forests are providing $500 billion of value each year. Oh, oh, wow. Let's just say that again. Hey, the first bit was really interesting. So, so like almost three quarters of a billion people live within 50 k's of a kelp forest. That's right. So if you live in, in London or Tokyo or Los Angeles or Cape Town or Sydney or Melbourne or Perth, you have a kelp forest on your doorstep. Huh. And it's generating, say that number again, because I don't think I even know how to say that number. How big is that? It, it's, it's massive. It's, it's really hard to just get your head around, but it's $500 billion per year. How, okay, now let's deconstruct this. How uh, is it generating that? What, what, like, what does a kelp forest bring into the economy that can be calculated by an economist 
um, which I'm not. <laughs> and so you'll have to say it in plain English. So how, what, what does it bring into the economy that you can calculate? Well, we started with the easy stuff. So we started with things that already had dollar values attached to them. So we looked at the fish and the invertebrates, things like lobster and abalone that live in the kelp forest that people are catching and selling and have market values. And then we also looked at the ability for kelp forest to clean the water. So if we have water pollution, we have to build a water treatment plant to, to clean that water. But if kelp forest is doing it for us, we can estimate how much the kelp is worth by saying how much it would cost to actually build the treatment plant and substitute mm-hmm. that activity. And then for carbon, we have these sort of international carbon markets on a price of how much carbon is taken out of the atmosphere and sequestered away to try to fight climate change and bring down CO2 emissions. And so, and so for each of those kind of three things, the kind of fisheries input, the kind of water quality input and the carbon input, I mean, collectively, I think of those as kind of ecosystem services. And then yep. you cost that. And do you get a kind of a per hectare, you know, kind of rate? If you've got a hectare of, um, you know, kelp forest, it gives you X? Yeah, so it varies a, a little bit depending where you are in the world, the species we're looking at. But on average, it's about 110,000 U.S. dollars per hectare, which isn't a huge area. That's only 100 meters by 100 meters. So that, that's quite a lot of value in a, in a small location. And, and let's just, this is just by having kelp existing in that hectare. Yeah, yeah, it's just, the, I mean, kelp is the dominant sort of habitat where it exists, so it tends to you know, take over the, take over the region. Um, but yeah, the, the, the kelp doing its thing. So let's talk about now why do this? Because I, I suspect there'll be some listeners, um, and Kate, you and I have talked about this in the past as well, where, you know, how, you know, there's an intrinsic value, you know, we, we, you know, from kelp. There's a there's a there's a kind of cultural value for some. There's a there's a spiritual value for others. There's just a standard kind of it's a beautiful aesthetic as well. And and what you know, why do why put a dollar value on something that a lot of people find immeasurably valuable? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of gone on my own journey myself with this. And, and when I started off in my career, I probably would have been against a study like this huh. for sort of the reasons that you, that you're talking about and just. You know, why do we need to debate nature to give it this dollar value that's that sort of constructed and imaginary? But as I've kind of gone through the profession and had a lot of conversations with a lot of people, it's just starting to recognize that, you know, people have different connection points, different motivations, different ways of understanding the world. So I don't think it's meant to mean this is the only reason we should care about a kelp forest. It's just a sort of illustration of this particular value in those terms and then depending on who we're talking to or what circumstance we're in so if you say you're making a, a management decision about one activity versus another activity it can be really helpful to have these quantifiable dollar values because you can make that decision with that information whereas with sort of the intrinsic value it, it's kind of an all or nothing and it doesn't allow mm. for that sort of gray area decision making uh, so it can have some really practical application in addition to just broadening the swath of society that we're talking to when we talk about why kelp forests are important. And so it's not to negate or ignore the cultural or the intrinsic or the beauty or the connection or the spiritual element of it, but just broaden that sort of messaging that we're putting out there because it's been missing in the past and you miss a lot of people if you don't have that sometimes. 
It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, the UN has, you know, in the last couple of years released the system for um, environmental economic accounts and and mm. um, there are ways to actually put these things on the balance sheets of governments and of traditional owners and of whoever, you know, is the actual custodian or the owner, so to speak, of these common resources, you know, which we, you know, no one really owns them in that sense. But, um, you know, like, I, you know, you, you, I, I, do you look forward to the day when the Treasurer gives a budget speech on, on, on Tuesday and actually says, and by the way, the environmental balance sheet is X? and it's made up of kelp forests and forests and, and you know, seagrasses or whatever. Do you think we're going to get there? I think we can. It's a, mm. it's a big value thing, but, you know, it would be great if we hear the, the quarterly GDP growth number <laughs> and then the next sentence we hear the, the quarterly change in kelp forest or seagrass or forest or grassland and, and just starting to recognize these things that really support us. And, you know, we, we need these to have those sort of economic activities and growth and the day-to-day life that we enjoy. And it's wonderful because so you've done the first pass um, of gathering that information so that the Treasurer, I'm looking forward to it, Aaron, I seriously, you know, within 10 years, let's have the Treasurer reporting on the GDP and the kelp, kelp health ratio. Um, we've got the music playing in the background, so we're almost out of time. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us um, live from wherever you are in the country at the moment. My pleasure. Always happy to, to chat the kelp. Oh, we're going to be, don't worry, we're going to keep yeah. talking kelp. <laughs> Perfect. Cheers, Aaron. Love to hear it. Bye for now. Bye. Aaron Eggers. That is um, Dr. Aaron Eggers from the University of um, New South Wales. It's yeah. really interesting stuff, that very whole discussion. Very strategic. It is, isn't Very it? well thought out. It's going to be interesting space to watch. It's remarkable. Hey, you, um, now Bron has had to go. She's got, um, obviously she's got training and the place, and I was like, liniment now? Yeah, she put her boots on, got a rub down from Tim, and she's out there. (laughs) (laughs) She's gone. (laughs) But she said to say goodbye at a great show. She's back next week, Um, I guess, you know, with more training. Triple R. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.